Good evening, everybody. Hope you're doing well. It's Steph. It is the un- unpodcasty time of uh, 2123, 923 on the 15th, I think. Uh, the 15th? Yeah, 15th of December. 2006, I just finished off doing some Christmas shopping after the company party where I had uh, one of those uh, flashy, knife-wielding Japanese chefs shovel massive amounts of food at me and others, and uh, I am I rather a fool. So, <laughs> it's the bloat cast. I wanted to uh, finish off, um, <laughs> I said finish off, oh, house... How modest of me. I just wanted to finish off the whole question of art. You see? It's all done now. All done forever. I wanted to uh, just uh, put some closing thoughts, at least on this round, of our conversation about art. Because uh, it seems that people like ye the topic. And if you like ye, I provide ye. So I wanted to talk about the sort of the why. The why of art. And the why of art is a subset of a much larger set of uh, whys, uh, which is really wise around things like uh, recipes and formulas and philosophy really as a whole and logic. The question is sort of why. Now, when you're young, you feel, most people feel, I felt at least, and I, most of the people I know felt this way as well, that you really had an eternity to recover from or to remediate any mistakes that you might make, right? So what was the cost of going out with the crazy girl when you were younger? It's not that high. You feel like, oh, heavens, I'm 20. I've got forever to do X, Y, and Z. I, ah, why, why am I going to? When you're young, you're going to have fun and this and that and the other. And it's, um, it's, not, uh, it's not so much true. Uh, It's really not so much true. There is not an eternity of time with which to recover from mistakes in life. And I don't mean the little ones, but the significant ones. You're marrying the wrong woman, um, having kids with the wrong woman, heaven forbid, not preparing yourself for any kind of challenging career, uh, not uh, not getting education. Uh, It's tough. You know, life choices, they whittle down just a little bit as you get older, right? There's not a whole lot of people. Uh, who say when they're 45, hey, I'm going to be a lawyer, right? I mean, this doesn't really, uh, it doesn't really happen that way. So you don't have, although it feels like, like that when you're young, you don't have an eternity of time to make mistakes. And uh, I'm 40 now, so I'm going to live double this time for sure. I don't really count my life as having started till I was in my 20s because it was such a wretched beginning, but... I sort of say, okay, well, I'm going to live to at least 80. I'm guessing 90 or 95, uh, you know, all other things being equal. I come from a long-lived family on both sides, and I try to take care of myself. So I've uh, been off the horse for weeks now, so, I mean, that's got to help, right? Uh, so, you know, you can double this. But, you know, when I get to be 45, uh, well, you know, you can't really double it and be sure that you're going to uh, make it, right? I mean, it's possible, of course but you can't be sure. And that is something that uh, is important to understand. Of course, when you're young, you feel like you haven't... This is a cliche, and I know it's not anything particularly inspiring or original, uh, but uh, it's true nonetheless, right? <laughs> Sometimes cliches are, are true, uh, just because they're cliches. And you don't have an eternity of time to correct your mistakes. So 
you don't want to have to keep reinventing the wheel when it comes to uh, to ethics or to morals, right? So you don't want to just make mistakes and say, gee, I really shouldn't have changed sword that cheerleading squad. Now I feel really bad because there's some things which can't be undone. Uh, similarly, our, our sensitivity to exploitation has been somewhat blunted by a variety of things. I, Marxism, I would sort of say, is one of them, that is, as if exploitation is some distant capitalist rather than your own family or, say, Marx himself. Our capacity to really understand exploitation has been sort of, uh, sort of blunted, and so... And our capacity to sort of respect and to look for virtue in those we spend time with has also sort of been uh, blunted. And so there's a lot of meandering in youth at the moment. There's a lot of uh, fame, I'm going to live forever. There's a lot of that stuff where, and it is true, it's true for me, and it's true for a lot of the people that I know, which is a bit of a self-selecting group, of course, but nonetheless, it seems that it's not that uncommon, that there's just a kind of forever and a day procrastinate uh and uh, procrastination is breathing so to speak it's like oh later i'll do the i'll do the dull stuff later i'll do the heavy lifting later i'll you know later 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 and of course there's some value in that right i mean it's not it's not like procrastination is always a bad thing i mean it's important to be able to enjoy the moment and there's, there's one of these delicate balances in life between the things that you have to do and the things that you enjoy doing when right? you you want to enjoy your life overall, which means going to the dentist even if you don't like it, right? I mean, but it doesn't mean only doing things that you have to or are supposed to or should do uh, in the sort of quote should. There really aren't any shoulds. It's a wonderful, wonderfully liberating thing about the argument for morality if there really are, are no shoulds. Right? There's only <laughs> shalt not and there are no shoulds. But uh, you want to find that balance, right? You want to be responsible for your future while enjoying your present and those things change over time. But art, really, in my sort of humble opinion, the, uh, one of the central things that art does is it is a warning about, about time. It's a warning about time, and it's a warning about consequences. So there's a, I can't remember who said it, but it's a good quote. And somebody said a book, like a novel, is a chance to try on someone else's life for size. And that's, there's some, some wisdom in that, I think. There's some real wisdom in that. So... To take a fairly obvious example, if you look at a movie like um, Fatal Attraction, Glenn Close and Michael Douglas, here's an example of, I mean, it's a bit of a brutal and, and really only in Puritan America could this kind of uh, re repercussions or ramifications occur to a man having an affair. I mean, in France, he would be cheered, right? But uh, And only in Puritan America would you have this kind of uh, Adam and Eve a story or, you know, the good wife and the bad mistress and the murderers and the bunnies and all this kind of stuff. But there is a tale of, and, you know, any guy who, uh, who's uh, got sensitivity feels for Michael Douglas when he finally has to tell his wife, like what a, what a horrible mess he's gotten into by getting involved with this borderline uh, woman. So there is a, uh, it's a, it's a, a scary morality tale. What is it someone said about that movie? It, it scared the pants on to American men or something. It scared the pants up. It's a kind of morality tale, and it's kind of a way of going through, as Aristotle says, right, through this catharsis, right? So you feel the fear and terror and horror of the 
hero's journey. And through that, you expunge some of the fear and horror within yourself. Now, certain people have looked into this question of catharsis and found that uh, it's really not the case. And in certain situations, it does seem to be not the case, right? Because it's fine if you feel the fear and horror and then feel relief when it's over and it's all released. But, of course, the fear and horror can be addictive, right? So you have people who are really into violent video games and they don't end up, uh, you know, burning the violence out of their system, but instead it becomes like if you listen to rap music and play violent video games, it's not a whole lot of catharsis. You don't end up strolling out of that kind of media exposure uh, as uh, Francis of Assisi uh, levitating on the forehead of Buddha. So this question of the emotional journey that we take with characters is a way, really, of bringing choice and consequences to life. Or it's a way of putting choice and consequences to death. And in certain films, that really does seem to be the case. If you look at another movie like Clerks, then you have a clear message at the end that Jason Mewes, the (laughs) body mouth sloppy seconds guy, uh, he uh, is saying, you know, well, you got this... This girl who brings you your uh, lasagna and shows up for you and takes care of the store for you and this and then you got this other girl who's cute and this and that, but um, you know she's kind of cold and mean and difficult and dangerous and so on. So go with the good thing. Go with the good thing. And that's a kind of morality tale, right? Right there, which is. You, you can't just judge a woman by her body and by her looks because she didn't earn those things. You judge a woman by the virtue and the way that she treats you and the way that she treats others and her kindness and her gentleness and her generosity and her courage and this and that. I mean, there's some morality tale in that. And there is also a morality tale in Clerks in that Dante uh, constantly complains about everybody else but never does anything himself, right? And there's it's another kind of morality tale uh, in that. In uh, I guess if we keep the Kevin Smith theme going, in Mallrats, Shannon Doherty has this speech at the beginning, which is good, where she says, uh, you know, they're out there in the world, there are people doing great things and uh, surgeons saving lives and explorers, you know, conquering deserts and so on, and I'm basically spending my life sitting here shagging you, and that's pretty sad. And so there is a kind of uh, you do nothing, you get nothing done, and so on, and there's a morality tale around that as well. Which is, well, I don't know, you, you, you know it, right? <laughs> no need for me to say it. And so when we go through a, an emotional journey with a character, it's very much like a really good cook. I mean, this is a metaphor, if you don't mind. Like a really good cook is going to be able to look at a recipe and say, "Uh uh-uh, that's not going to work. That's going to taste bad. Or it's going to need a pinch more of this, or it's going to need a dash more of that. Because they look at the recipe, and they can kind of taste the result. The best art, in my view, and I think that all art does this to some degree or another, but the best art is the art which lets you look at the recipe of a life and taste the dish that's going to come out. And the best art trains you emotionally to see the consequences of particular traits 
in people's personalities and see down to the core so that you don't have to waste time. So that you don't have to waste time. So in a movie, for instance, if you have a character who's always arriving late and then you show that, that, that he's kind of cute and he's kind of charming and, and so on, right? But he's always arriving late. And then the woman sort of falls for his cute and his charm and, and his, uh, you know, good looks or whatever. And she marries him. She has children. And he turns into this sort of Robin Williams before the fake breasts and Mrs. Doubtfire. He turns into uh, an irresponsible guy who won't get a job, who shows up late for interviews, who gets fired because of this, that, or the other. And what it is trying to train you to do is to be sensitive to an inconsequential or seemingly inconsequential detail like a guy who shows up late. So, you know, for instance, I mean, this can work sort of in a, in a way that makes sense and also in a way that doesn't so much make sense, right? So, I mean... We all know the cliche that every bad guy in the history of movies for the last 10 years has had to be a smoker, right? If you're a smoker, you're immediately a bad guy. It's an, it's an optional, you know, it's an option, it's a choice habit. And that's very different from the Cary Grant or the Humphrey Bogart films where the good guy was the, the smoker. So art is also trying to train you to see the details at the beginning and how they play out. The details at the beginning and how they play out. So, you can look at, I mean, the, this can work from all the way from Kevin Smith to, to, uh, to Shakespeare, right? I mean, you look at Hamlet at the beginning, and there's a certain amount of self-loathing. There's indecision. There's an over-attachment to the mother. There's a morbid, um, a morbid absorption with the death of his father and so on. And a, uh, as he puts it, uh, so is the native cast of resolution, uh, sorry, is a uh, sicklied over with the pale cast of thought. I can't remember the line that leads up to it. Sicklied over with the pale cast of thought. Analysis paralysis, right? I mean, that, that somebody who is, uh, very introspective and, and cynical and negative is going to be unprepared for making, uh, large decisions or fundamentally powerful decisions or, life-changing decisions, that there's going to be a kind of worry-wart paralysis that's going to occur with this kind of person, and that's something really to watch out for. This kind of person is going to be incapable of real love, and you can see from the way in which he just attacks Ophelia, attacks, you nicknamed God's creatures. I've always loved that line. Uh, it's such a wonderful way to talk about sentimental femininity. You nicknamed God's creatures. And he just is savage, right? And so there's a certain amount of things which you can pull out of Hamlet, right? That guys who are overattached to their moms can be uh, uh, sexually volatile and dangerous. All right, there's a lesson for, um, for women in Ophelia and her relationship with Hamlet. However exciting and brooding and melancholy uh, this kind of morbid personality is, this is not a fit partner to raise your children with, right? And if you, if you fall in love with such an unstable, no, no matter how brilliant, right? No matter how many flashes of brilliance there are, if you fall in love with such an unstable personality, no matter how beautiful his poetry is, no matter how stirring his speeches are, you will, uh, you will die. You will die and you will drown and you will sink. 
Actually, I think it's the drown and then die and then sink and then rise, gassy and bloated. Anyway, we don't have to get into the whole after story of Hamlet. But there's a story, there's a moral in there as well, right? So then when some woman meets a darkly exciting guy who's uh, got incredible verbal skills, uh, is overattached to his mother, and is fairly pretty pessimistic, right? wants to die. Well, sure, she's going to want to rescue him, and she's going to think that it's very exciting and so on. But the, one of the things that the story of Hamlet is going to say is, uh, don't be an Ophelia, right? Don't fall for this guy and get your heart torn out. Because that's what's going to happen. So this is why the greatest artists are the greatest psychologists who can see the small details at the beginnings of things and show you how they play out. Right, so in, uh, in Fatal Attraction, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but you know, Glenn Close uh, basically jumps, is incredibly sexually forward, jumps um, Michael Douglas's uh, fairly tired old, even by then, bones, and then uh, you know becomes obsessive. Is there are there clues at the very beginning? Well, of course there are. Of course there are. And what is not explained in uh, the movie, of course, because they do want to make the heroes the heroes sympathetic, is that you don't end up in a mess like that unless you you know. This is what art. One of the great dangers of art is that it's going to externalize things, right? So it's like, oh, man, I just had an affair with a woman, and she just out of nowhere turned out to be crazy and blah, 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 blah. Well, it's never that simple. It's never that simple, right? There's always something crazy in the person who gets involved with a crazy person. It's not just, oh, man, who could have guessed, right? Now, a lot of art is around obscuring that, right? Because there's art that comes from the light side, and there's art that comes from the dark side, right? There's the Yoda art, <laughs> art there is, and there is the Veda art, <laughs> And it's important to differentiate between the two, right? So in, in dark art, right, in, in black art, and this is like so common now, it's ridiculous, right? It's not just a, a convenience, but in dark art, uh, people uh, solve their problems with violence. Uh, people are cool, and there's slow motion shots of the guys walking down the street with their sunglasses on and, and you know, blues playing and all this kind of stuff. And, and so people solve their problem with violence. Um, uh, people uh, fall into bed with each other and then end up being in love, right? So you meet uh, someone and you have sex with them and then you get to know each other and you fall in love. All of which, I mean, complete nonsense. If you have sex with someone the moment that you meet with them, uh, you're both disturbed, right? I mean, and now you can start flaming me about this, but uh, I will still stick to it. Uh, that is going to... Uh, not work out because you have no trust yet no no trust no knowledge of the other it's you know it's just lust and there's nothing wrong with lust but lust and love is the real ambrosia right lust alone you know leaves you kind of empty right but bad art will have you want to do the wrong things right so bad art will stuff you know gorgeous naked women uh, who uh, just want to have sex with you no commitment no family no marriage no kids and it's not like not wanting those things is bad or anything like that but i think that the truth is that the majority of people do i mean it seems to be the case the majority of people do want these things and so art that puts you in the wrong direction to achieve these things and then lies to you and tells you that you can achieve them is to me bad misleading and corrupt art so, of course, the Tarantino stuff and to some degree the Woody Allen stuff, right? I saw some movie on the weekend uh, with Woody Allen and Hugh Jackman and Scarlett Johansson. And so 
Hugh Jackman meets Scarlett Johansson, and then they basically, on their first date or second date, she stays the night. Well, they don't know anything about each other, right? And they don't want to know anything about each other. They just want to have sex with each other. That's yeah, kind of cold, right? You can get mad and call me old-fashioned and so on, but that's kind of cold. And then they try to build a relationship, and it works fine. It works very nicely. It works wonderfully. No problems. Right? And that's just not true, right? I mean, of course, Woody Allen is a pretty disturbed fellow himself, but uh, this kind of stuff, of, so where you have people solving problems with violence all the time, where you have noble uh, cops and noble firefighters and noble soldiers and so on, uh, it's all just um, you know, that this propaganda, right? And it's propaganda that leads people down the wrong path. Because what it does is, like, if you have art that shows everybody who has a certain amount of self-respect and doesn't jump into bed with someone on the first or second date, if you show everyone like that as a screwed-up prude and everyone who is, you know, sexually open and adventurous and jumps into bed with each other and so on, if you show them all as fun-loving and cool and hip and sexy and, you know, then you have the little Christian girl in the thick glasses who, you know, oh, don't you touch me down there, you know, like you sort of make fun of everyone who is um, who has some restraint and you portray everyone who has no restraint as cool and that really is you know the story of teen flicks pretty much since the dawn of time and certainly since fast times at Richmond High then uh, what's uh, what are you sort of saying like what are you sort of really saying well you're saying that uh, anybody who has self-respect around sexual matters and wants to get to know you before uh, having sex with you is uh, screwed up, right? Is emotionally weird and retarded and, and, you know, stuck up and needs to be loosened up, man, you know? Chill, relax, relax, you know? You always hear this kind of nonsense, right? And this is the nihilism, right? This is the rage against virtue. And everybody who just sort of falls all over each other and just has sex with each other at a moment's notice and doesn't care about getting to know each other and, you know, the hooking up kind of stuff, right? That, uh, I mean, in weeds, you see this, right? The, the son gets the girl pregnant and, uh, you know, consciously to, you know, to screw up her life. Well, to keep her with him, which would be to screw up her. And he's portrayed as, you know, I mean, a bit of a brat, but, you know, obviously kind of cool, right? And that is uh, art that points people in the wrong direction. It points people in the wrong direction. So there's, uh, I remember some old Remington Steel. I, I think I only watched one or two of those shows in aggregate. But this is Pierce Brosnan's old show from, I don't know, early 90s or something, late 80s. And I don't even, I think I only watched just the last 10 minutes of it or something while I was eating or something like that. I'll forget the excuses. I watched the show. And he was upset at some bureaucrat and he grabbed the bureaucrat and he dragged him across the desk and he shook his fist in his face and, you know, he made sort of, he grabbed his head and made him nod and say whatever, 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 right? And, uh, yeah, of course, I mean, I know the bureaucrat is a statist and this and that, but still, it's, you know, using violence to solve problems. And what it does is then people who don't use violence or who don't feel that insane to do that kind of stuff, it makes those people feel like, well, I should be tougher, I should be stronger, I should, that's the standard, and I'm a deviation from it. That's how people get things done. They go down to the Department of Motor Vehicles and they shake their fists in people's faces. Well, of course, what that does is it lands you in jail. 
right? But but people put out this kind of stuff. Like this is how people deal with their problems, right? This is how people deal with conflict. They get a gun, they yell, they scream, they this, they that. And uh, it really is uh, pointing people in the wrong direction. So it's the emotional flavor that you put on the consequences of decisions that gives people, like it either firms up their compass when it comes to truth and reality, or it totally screws up their compass when it comes to truth and reality and points them in the wrong direction. And this is another reason why statism is just working so beautifully in a hellish kind of way, because people are sort of emotionally tuned to hate capitalists and to love the thugs of the government. And even, in a sense, to sort of respect the mafia. To respect, you know, Scarface and, and this is the, the death cults of these many different cultures, right? And if you look at religion as a kind of art as well, well, people are taught through the parables of Jesus to obey your masters, to obey your secular government, to obey your church, to obey God, to not question, to not think. And those who do think and who do question are evil and go to hell, right? That's a piece of artistic triumph that trumps any piece of movie making that's ever been achieved, right? Because then you have uh, the moral is very clear and is actually considered to be a, a, something that's going to happen to you, right? So... So if you uh, and, and so if you look at something like fatal attraction, if you end up not having an affair, although you really want to, because you're scared that the woman's going to boil your children's bunnies, that's not really the same <laughs> as being virtuous, right? This is a threat, right? This is a Christian approach to virtue, which is that you need to bully people, uh, except you can't bully priests and you can't bully God. So it's not exactly conforms. Doesn't exactly conform to the argument for morality. Uh, and that sort of that teaches people bad ethics, right? Oh, but she could be scary, right? She could be, you know, she could end up uh, stalking me. Uh, that's not the same. <laughs> it's got very little to do with virtue. That's just fear, right? That's just oh well, I'd steal, but uh, uh, I could get caught, right? And I mean, I've been there, and I was younger, and that's not virtue, right? That's just calculation, right? That's just odds. So, art is a lot about training us to, to the, as to the consequences of certain decisions, and art has an aesthetic cheat that philosophy just can't match. So, as I said, if you make all the cool, good-looking people, if you if you have them doing bad things, then those bad things will look cool and good, right? Especially to you sort of young, impressionable teenagers. And if you have the people who are interested in virtue be, being sort of stuck up and priggish and nose in the air and heads in a book and no life and cardigan sweaters and, you know, uh, you know, if you have in a teen movie, if you have the virtuous girl, she's got a pink bow-tied room and teddy bears on her bed and she's, you know, obviously kind of stunted and retarded emotionally. And so she lives in that. That's got an implicit statement as to morality being a kind of childishness. And you do see this kind of stuff quite a bit, right? The virtuous girl is a stutterer. She desperately wants to fit in, but she's afraid. And it's her virtue that's holding her back from having a good time and from getting into the cool crowd and so on. But there, or you have this sort of Charlotte Simmons stuff from Tom Wolfe's last book where her virtue is, is prudishness and priggishness and so on. And it's just a withholding or a withdrawal uh, or a negation of the sexual urges of more corrupt people. 
but it's not a sort of positive, virtuous thing. And she goes to get sucked into this kind of stuff anyway. This is like a medieval, or sorry, sort of sort of nineteenth-century kind of Samuel Richardson and Pamela morality tale of uh, that sort of stuff. But he's he's he makes me look funky and new-fashioned. But it's important, you know, if you really want to sort of get a hang of what art is doing in terms of training your moral sensitivity, training your moral sense. You know, a a soldier, sorry, a movie where the soldier just shoots guys in a bloodless manner and charges up the hill and takes and gets cheered and, you know, gets the girl and so on, is saying one thing, right? A movie, uh, Three Kings was one of these, a movie where you get to hear things from the other side is a whole different kind of movie that's going to teach you something quite different about moral sensitivity. So a movie is really about tasting the results in the recipe, and it's training you emotionally to associate certain emotional characteristics with certain states of morality or certain moral choices. And I think that's a very important thing to understand. In terms of reversibility, there's this guy. What's his name? I can't remember his name. Uh, he's, uh, he's on The Daily Show. Manji something? Anyway, he's a uh, foreigner, and he's just brilliant. I mean, he just makes my, he gives me goosebumps, his analyses of things. He did one the other day. Um, Rumsfeld said, yeah, well, people talk about uh, Iran, Iraq like it's all bad, but there are lots of sections of it that aren't, you know, on fire or something like that. And he said, uh, he said, uh, no, this is exactly how Americans, you know, of course, it's absolutely true that the vast majority uh, or the majority of Iraq is not currently on fire. And he said that's exactly how the uh, Americans reacted to 9-11 when they said, well, there's vast amounts of the U.S. that aren't currently a smoking crater. And, of course, that, you know. So seeing the perspective from the other person, from the other side, seeing, seeing the hypocrisies of those who are putting certain ideas forward, all of this can be achieved through art. And art argues through consequences. It it, 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 it creates or affects emotional states by an argument from consequences. It's not a rational argument. It's an argument from consequences. And as such, it's a very powerful technique, which is why religions and propagandists and statists always use art to uh, get their message across, because it allows people to bypass the, um, the question of uh, rational evaluation and understanding and just make the moral arguments in terms of casting, in terms of coolness, even in terms of music, right? I mean, the corrupt people come on, on screen and you get this down, 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 the really cool music or whatever. That's very different. Whereas if you get uh, the cool people, the, the sort of moral priggish people coming on and you get some sort of uh, hopped up Disney nonsense or some sort of swaggering country and Western uh, idiocy, that's music makes the argument, casting makes the argument, and the script, not in its content, but in its form, right? If you make the moral person a stutterer, you're making an argument about what morality is. And it's just very important to, I think, really review and understand what art is doing to your moral sense and how it's conditioning what you consider to be, you know, good and cool and right behavior and so on, and compare that to rational standards that I think are a bit more universal and make sense. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you soon.